We talked recently about asking questions and uh, how it is a, a lost art in our day and in our society. And really, the passage that is in front of us ends up, the things we're going to talk about at the very end, have to do with God so working in your life that you become the kind of person who is deeply concerned about affecting other people with His love. And so much that goes on here in this passage really equates to all of that. But let's begin to look at this. I want to cover a number of these verses. You remember last time that we were talking about the uh, spirit-filled ability that Jesus demonstrated in front of all these people and how He wants to do that in our lives. The setting is that they're at the Feast of Tabernacles, which was one of the greatest feasts, really the greatest feast of the year. And it was a tremendous time of celebration that sort of went up and up and up and culminated with some of these specific things that are going on in front of us. And finally, you come to about the eighth day, which would be the final day of it all, and they had a very special ceremony that they would do that had to do with water. And we're going to end up at that point in the passage. And so here he is. He's in Jerusalem. He's waited for just the right moment. There's a plot to kill him, which has leaked out. And the people from Galilee are probably not so much aware of that, that have made the trip down to Jerusalem. But those around Jerusalem are very much aware of it because it's the religious leaders of all people uh, in Jerusalem that have hatched the plot, that really want to kill him. And it's all something that goes way back to a healing that he did of a poor, lame, paralyzed man. And he healed him on the Sabbath. And they could not see past their mechanical rituals and rules and ceremonies to the heart of God to really bless God for the changed life of the man he healed and for the act of mercy that he demonstrated. But rather, from that time, they were so aggravated with him and the claims that he made after that, they've been wanting to kill him. And so in the crowds that are in the temple and in Jerusalem area, Jesus has stood up and he is now teaching and saying some pretty intense things. So in verse 19 we pick up. They've had this discussion going and he says, Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? What a, what a thing to say. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? That's almost a certain death wish. I mean, if he hadn't done anything to this point to make them want to kill him, this would do it. Because these guys, the religious leaders, their whole life was copiously studying the law, the scriptures, copying them as we've talked about before. So when he says, did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law, why do you seek to kill me? It's almost like you can see him pausing in the middle of those two statements. Because their whole approach to the law was outward. Did not Moses give you the law? Yes, that's right. And we're the ones that understand it. We know it. We teach it. Nobody here could even apply it without us. So you can see them nodding their heads. But then a long pause. But none of you keeps the law. Well, wait a minute. What do you mean by that? Well, the idea was that everything they did was on the outside. They 
refined, if I could use that word, they refined their relationship with God to merely the external. And then they cleverly figured out over the years how to even then warp the externals to basically get around anything they wanted to get around. So that all of the things that they taught by this time were external. And that's why when you come to the Sermon on the Mount, you find Jesus saying, I didn't come to overturn the law or to get rid of the law, but to fulfill the law. And then he begins to pull them back to the heart of God and the law. And he says, you have said that you shouldn't be angry with your brother or call him a fool. But I say to you, if you are angry with him, you've committed murder in your heart. And so he takes them from their teachings of the day, which were all outward, to the real teaching of the law, which is the heart. And that's really what he's doing here. So that when he says, none of you keeps the law, he's saying, not only have you hated me already, which is really a violation of the second table of the law, the Ten Commandments, which deals all with your relationships horizontally, loving your fellow man, you love God first, that's the first table of the law, the first half or so, the Ten Commandments, and then the second half all deal with then the horizontal relationships, loving those around you. And the heart of the matter, really, thou shalt not kill, which we're all familiar with, really deals initially with the heart. Jesus said in his own teaching, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, all these things. So murder in the beginning originates in the heart. And here he says, none of you keep the law. For example, why do you go about to kill me? You couldn't get any more basic than to know that the Ten Commandments say, thou shalt not kill. And yet you have spent many months figuring out how you can kill me. Can you imagine how that just, nothing like a simple but very deep and profound statement inspired by the Holy Spirit to turn on the lights in hundreds of minds all at once and suddenly everybody standing there in the crowd would understand what hypocrites these people were, which only would go along with all the rich things he'd been teaching them that were already astonishing them and touching their hearts. And the people answered, some of them, they said, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. This would be the people murmuring in the crowd that said he was bad. Some said he was good, some said he was bad and a deceiver. Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, because it goes back even before that to Abraham, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? It's amazing here what he's doing. What he's doing, he's, he's sort of sweeping in all the ceremonies of the feast, every occurrence which is something to do with the external, and he's slowly pulling them in to the matters of the heart, slowly pulling them in to showing them their great need for a relationship with God and not these mechanical things. And that's all I want to say on that because I don't want to get ahead of myself. But he's, he's using the entire feast for that, to bring them to a relationship with God. And that's what he's doing here. He says in verse 24, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge righteous 
judgment. In other words, what he's saying to them is, how could you be so mechanical and shallow? I mean, to study the Bible constantly, somewhere along the line, you must have become so rock hard in your hearts that you could still study the living scriptures every day, and yet, instead of being deep and profound, really understanding the heart of God, you're so shallow. You're so shallow and so hard-hearted and so utterly mechanical. He says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. One of the sure signs of somebody that is living a, quote, Christian life that is not from the heart, but more of a mechanical means to an end, if I could put it that way. One of the sure signs of that is when you start seeing uh, sort of a shallow, outward uh, judgment being made, hasty, not thoughtful. He says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. In other words, if you simply thought about his life for 10 minutes, if you understood how even coming up to the place, you know, secretly, there's no doubt lives touched along the way in all his public ministry, so much had been done that was so unparalleled, that to look at his life, to stand there and, and look at the faces of the people being so touched and plowed by the Spirit of God, and to be unable to bypass his peasant garments, it's so shocking. And the idea is that they are so mechanical and so shallow that all they can do is just look at the outward. This guy, he sort of lives in Galilee. He's a peasant rabbi. He's a nobody. We're the learned scholars of Jerusalem. It's all mechanical and shallow. And thus their judgment is so warped. When you see people in the church that make hasty judgments, that affect what they do with their lives, causing them sometimes to take a wrong turn that only leads them into a more shallow existence, maybe even with, you know, birds of a feather that like to flock together. Um, it's a sure sign that what you have is a flock of people who've been in a mechanical deal. And it may have been orthodox. It may have been a fine thing in and of itself. But when you have people that are making rash, quick, shallow judgments, you have people that have been living shallow, mechanical, religious lives and not lives of a deep relationship with God. Because the life in fellowship with God is always going to have that patience, the broader picture, the illumination of the Spirit, and the insight to judge a righteous judgment. He says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. In other words, look at the whole picture, look at the fruit, you know, a tree by its fruit. And uh, I'm amazed at how often people make judgments without stopping to back up and look at the tree and the fruit. But rather simply to respond quickly on an emotional moment and judge an outward, shallow judgment that really eclipses all the fruit on the tree. You understand what I'm saying? I don't mean to speak only in metaphors and pictures, but they're all biblical. So he says, do not judge according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. How could you be so mechanical and shallow? And that is to say also, 
You know, this whole business of people saying, don't judge me, brother. It's, it's one of the biggest cop-outs known in the Christian church. Another sure sign of being in a bad place with the Lord is to say that. Because pretty much if you're right with God, hey, you know you're right with God. You know your life speaks for itself. Go ahead and judge me. If you look at the whole picture, you'll see enough fruit there to see a direction, not a perfection, but a direction in the life to know that I'm walking with God. And if I'm not, and you look at the whole picture, well then, obviously, you know, you can go ahead and judge the tree by its fruit. Jesus said you judge a tree by its fruit. And so... When people say to you, don't judge me, brother, they're going back to the passage where Jesus said, judge not, lest you be judged. And they're just taking a shallow cursory run across the top of it, seizing it out of context and using it as a cop-out. Anytime someone says to me, don't judge me, brother, I simply say, Jesus also said, you know, a tree by its fruit, I'm just a fruit inspector. And I don't inspect according to my own rules or whims or emotions. This is what I use for inspection. I have a whole manual here, you see. I've got a long checklist. So as I inspect the fruit, there's plenty of things and criteria from God in black and white and red that I can use to inspect the fruit. So the bottom line is, is in a conversation like that, I usually ended up by saying, I don't judge you, the Bible does. You want to hear some of it? Let's go through some of it. And that way the person is forced at least to deal with what the scripture has to say. And see, the carnal person loves to weasel out of situations and responsibility and godliness simply by saying, don't judge me. It's almost like they're really saying, shall we redefine it once and for all? They're really saying, shut up and let me be carnal. That's what they're really saying. Because that's what I like. So now you know how to redefine to them and help them understand what they're really saying. You know, sometimes people say things and they don't know what they're really saying. So you can say, can I hear that again? Judge, don't judge me, brother. Let me, let me tell you what you're really saying. What you're really saying to me is, leave me alone and let me be carnal. And don't look too long at my fruit because you'll find it stinks. And there's a lot of rotting stuff laying all around. And it's just a big cop-out. And if you understand that, you can, you can deal with these issues. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge righteous judgment. Let it have some depth. Let it have some insight. Let it have some biblical parameters and basis. And go ahead and make a right assessment. Because there were people in the crowd that were doing exactly that. And those are the ones that came on into that personal relationship with God. And then, of course, the, the shallow mechanical masses the ones that crucified him, they, had, they went with their flow. And there always is a flow among people like that. They tend to just move around in groups. More we can say on that, but let's move on. Verse 25. Now some of them from Jerusalem said, Is this not he whom they seek to kill? But look, he speaks boldly. And they say nothing to him. Do the rulers not know indeed that this is truly the Christ? However, we know where this man is from, but when the Christ comes, no one knows where he is from. One of the reasons they said that is, again, a basic... Okay, let me back up. One of the reasons they said that is because ignorant teachers, ignorant students. You understand? Shallow teachers, shallow students. So that shallow leaders, shallow disciples... So no, no one knows where he comes from. We have dealt at length, you know, with a lot of the prophecies in the Old Testament recently in our series. 
that we've been on, God our Savior, and how the Bible told the place of his birth, the time of his birth, and all of this, so that you have Simeon waiting in the temple, knowing he's not going to die until he sees the Christ. Why is it these people say, well, nobody knows where he's coming from? Well, it's because they've been following shallow teachers. You end up with that kind of confusion and ignorance. You live in a question mark on the critical issues. The critical issues. Unable to cope with life as you need to when you follow teachers like that. In reality, one of the contributing factors to that as well is the idea that in the Old Testament, some of the prophecies seemingly contradicted one another. So that you'll have a prophecy that says he's going to, going to die, like um, Isaiah that speaks of his sufferings, and he bore our sorrows, our griefs, and so on, and the crucifixion, all of that. They, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. They pierced my hands and my feet. I mean, all these things speak of death. Yet you have other prophecies that say he'll sit on the throne of David forever. So how do you have these prophecies that say he's going to die and that he's going to live forever? Well, but you have to put them all together and study them. And that's how you study God. Not in a cursory fashion, but a methodical, heartfelt, honest approach, linking Scripture with Scripture. And thus, if I could say it, you can judge righteous judgment. So here they are in their ignorance. And they're just murmuring among themselves out of their ignorance. So verse 28, Jesus cried out as he taught in the temple, saying, You both know me, and you know where I am from. I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. But I know him, for I am from him, and he sent me. Therefore they sought to take him. But no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. So there he is, invincible, until his hour has come, as is every Christian. That's a nice thought, isn't it? You're invincible until your time has come to go to be with God the Father. Remember that when you get on an airplane and get prayed up, because if your time is on the way, it could be soon. But otherwise, go to the mission field, live among the worst of conditions. You're invincible until your time comes. So they really wanted to kill him then. But the hand of God moved him away and they weren't able to. And many of the people believed in him and said, When the Christ comes, verse 31, will he do more signs than these which this man has done? Then verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things concerning him. And the Pharisees and chief priests sent officers to take him. Did you ever wonder who the officers are? Officers. What does that mean? Officers. The picture, once you get it and see it in the Gospels in the New Testament, you will never be oblivious to it again. You have, at the time of Jesus, Annas and Caiaphas, two high priests, one being the previous, one being the current. It's like Mr. President, you say, to the previous president. But these two guys basically ran the whole operation. They had at their beck and call the temple police. And the temple police, effectively, are the officers here. So that anything they wanted to do, right or wrong, they could use the temple police for it. It's the equivalent of what you see so often uh, in the movies where you have the law enforcement people working for the uh, law-breaking people. 
And because of the money, the position, and the power, they go along. They're paid off. You, you find that occasionally with judges and, and, and police officers and so on. Anyhow, so they call for the officers because they have this entire power base to work their evil deeds. But even that is not enough to allow them to kill Jesus at this point in time. So they call for them to take him. And then in verse 33, Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer. Then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go? And what shall we not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? You know what it reminds me of? I mean, they're, they're completely oblivious to everything he is saying. It reminds me of people in our lives that may be a little religious. Maybe they go to church, you know, to some fringe denominational type of thing that uh, really isn't centered in Christ. And we come around with our Bibles, and we tend to take them around with us, and we tend to quote them a lot because we read them a lot. And we talk about, the Lord showed me, or I feel the Lord is leading me. And we talk about, I'm just going to have to step out in faith on this. And they look at us sometimes like we're totally crazy. And they, 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 they murmur among themselves. Where, where, where should he go in this life of faith? You know, well, the Lord's leading me to be a missionary on such and such a place. Well, no, you can't do that. You see, you have this great job. You've got to take over the family business. You've got to do this. You've got to do that. Like William Borden. You know the whole Borden dairy business? William Borden, he was scheduled by the family to take over the family business and all of the money and everything else. And along the way, he became truly converted and God put it in his heart to be a missionary and no one in his family could understand it. And he started giving away all of his money to needy people and to Christians and to missionary causes. And everybody thought he'd gone nuts. By the end of it all, he was in heaven by the time he was 30 or so. And he had spent his whole life helping people, preparing for the mission field, giving away his money. And then on the way to the mission field in Egypt, he was on his way to China. He caught meningitis and he was dead within a month. And he never got to the mission field. But you see, his whole life he did exactly what God wanted him to. And yet no one could understand him or where he was going. Where are you going with all this, William? We've spent our lives to pile this money up. You get your part and give it away. You give away your cars and all of this. They said, where is he going? Is he going out among the dispersion asking silly questions? Because they don't have a clue. Your life, if it's truly spirit-led, is truly a life of faith is going to be a perplexity to people around you. And if you understand that, you'll be ready for it, and you'll also be ready to smile, and be loving with them, and patient with them, and use it as a point of witness and explanation, rather than to get mad at them, and condemn them, and act like they're big dummies, because they don't understand your life with God. And that's only going to alienate them further. So here they are. You will seek me where I am, you cannot come. And then verse 36, And what is this thing that he said, You will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come? Now from here, on the last day, this would be eight days into the feast, on the great day of the feast, the last day, Jesus stood and he cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Here is where I really want to focus in now in the message. There is three things here that really stand out in this little section in verse 37 down to 39. One is that he invites the thirsting heart. Here Jesus invites the thirsting heart. Two is he instructs the willing heart. He instructs the willing heart. And three, he infuses the open heart. He infuses the open heart. Let's talk about the first one here. He invites the thirsting heart. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. The amazing thing about Jesus is how he always would say things that were in the flow of what was going on around him. In other words, as people's hearts were being moved and minds were being moved by events around him, he would get right in the flow of those events and that's where he would place his teaching. So that the events would already have opened their hearts in a certain way, he would get in that flow and take the truth to get it right down in there so it would hit them the hardest with the greatest impact. I want to show you how he does that here. But the first thing here to notice is that he places no restriction on the type of man or woman who is invited to come. And I like that. If anyone thirsts, anyone. And that's critical. Absolutely critical. If anyone thirsts, it's an invitation to all. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter where you're from. And then notice he places no restrictions on the type of thirst. The type of thirst. He says, if anyone thirsts, he doesn't say, if anyone thirsts for pleasure. He doesn't say, if anyone thirsts for money. He doesn't say, if anyone thirsts for power. He doesn't say anything that specific. He simply says, if you thirst, I'm the answer. Think about that. Do you have a big thirst in your soul for something? He is the answer. And it doesn't matter what it is. He is the answer. And that's his point. You know, I think it's important to know you're thirsty. And I think it's tragic to be really thirsty. To live a life without God. To have an aching void inside that only God can fill. And to live your life trying to fill that void with other things is to become, in the end, very thirsty. Because you've been trying to quench this thirst that's really spiritual and you've tried to do it with material things and experiences. And in the end, you become so desperately thirsty that your life is just one day of gnawing frustration after the next. And it doesn't matter what the big area is that you're really thirsting in. And in the end, everybody ends up thirsting in different ways. But without God, without Jesus Christ, you live a desperately empty, thirsty life. It's kind of like, have you ever worked out? Anybody here ever worked out? Let, let me ask a real serious question. How many have worked out but don't anymore? Go ahead, just be honest. All right, thought I'd get most of you anyhow. But you know how when you're working out, the rest of you will make us feel guilty. We don't want to see you. But you know how when you're really working out and you build up a thirst, 
If you, if you say you work out with weights and you jog and you go in the steam room, you can be so thirsty that you could drink and drink and drink the rest of the day and nothing seems to quench that thirst. That's, a, that's like the thirst in the soul where you, you've exercised yourself in life in every direction and you've spent yourself and you're trying to find that quenching thirst, that thirst quencher and you can't find it. That's because only God can quench it. Recently, ABC News ran a special called The Mystery of Happiness. Who has it and how to get it with John Stossel. The program began with the question, what is happiness? What do you think were some of the answers they got? What is happiness? One man said, happiness is a hundred million dollars. A woman interviewed said, happiness is more ready cash. Another man said, a castle. Another said, a private island. Another said, a bunch of women. <laughs> One man, in this program they also interviewed some lottery winners, people that stand around forever, rubbing those things, you know, hoping for your big day. Let me just tell you where you end up if you get it. One man, Curtis Sharp, who collected five million in the New York lottery, said after his win, if you could stop drooling for a minute, just hang on, I saw some of you. Oh, that's it, that's me, I know, oh God, if you believe in lottery, let me be like this five million dollar man in New York, please God. We're in the house of prayer tonight. Hear me now, Lord. Well, hang on. Let's see where this $5 million man went. One man, Curtis Sharp, collected $5 million in the New York lottery. He said after his win, for a while it seemed like I was in a dream world. He was then asked, did you come down to earth? Oh, yes. I came down to earth. I got divorced from my first wife and married my second wife and spent a lot of money on the wedding, $100,000. $100,000, you know, you get five million, hey, what's 100,000? He said, the only thing is that that didn't last even five years, that wedding. He said, I mean, how many suits can I wear? How many hats can I wear? You know what I'm saying? So that the guy wins five million, and he ends up miserable. Divorces the first wife, probably thinks he's going to get somebody better with all this cash in his pocket and forgets that he's still himself. He was probably lucky to have the first one being who he was. And his money didn't, his wallet didn't change it. Anyhow, you might think maybe, well, he just didn't win enough. If he'd gotten more than five million, things would have been different. Inflation, you know, and everything, but... So consider Jerry Gagliardi and her husband who won 26 million. 26 million. It almost makes a preacher get in sin in the pulpit. Anyhow, 26 million. And she said, I was numb for three years. And the interviewer asked, but surely you must have been happy. She replied, well, yes and no. I got a divorce. Two years after we won, the interviewer then asked her, can money buy you happiness? Of course not. 
can buy you a therapist. You can buy you a marriage counselor. People have a misconception about money. She said, you know, you go out, you say, that's what I want, I'll buy it. Then a couple of weeks later, the emptiness comes back. Then what? The thirst, you see. Philosopher Eric Hoffer wrote, the search for happiness is one of the chief sources of unhappiness. So that's exactly what I was saying to you a few minutes ago, that you exercise yourself in life, you search, and you only get more thirsty. See, Jesus calls out and he says, if you thirst, come to me. It's a tragic thing to be that thirsty. But you know something? I think there's a sense in which there's something even more tragic than that. To not have God, to be so thirsty, to be so empty, to be so frustrated, to go from one marriage to the next. And that is, the worst thing, I think, is to not even be thirsty. You see, at least these people, who 26 million, 5 million, at least they know now how thirsty they really are. Money can't buy you happiness. I had all that money and I'm still thirsty. But you see, some people, they don't even thirst at all. And, you know, you get any preacher of the Word of God that stands up and teaches regularly, and they can tell you exactly what I'm saying. You look at those lightless, sightless, unfeeling eyes that sit out there. You see people where you say, you want uh, money? I've got something better than that. Join heirs with Jesus Christ forever. You're going to inherit all things with Him. And that's real. You're going to get it as you in a body that's looking good and glorified forever. And you're going to experience it. And it's going to go on and on. It's real. It's not just some dream pie in the sky. You want money? Join heirs with Christ. Much better. Live for Him. And they're unmoved. Not interested. So you warn them with the gospel. If you turn from God, if you live in your sin, if you live in your guilt, and you think you'll find the, the solution to your thirst somewhere else, then you will pay the price in eternal separation from God. God created hell for the devil and his angels. And if you follow him, you'll go there too. And they sit there unmoved. You see, to me, more tragic than a great gnawing, agonizing thirst. And knowing how thirsty you are is to have become so apathetic in life that nothing moves you. And I've seen people, my heart breaks for them as they sit and listen to the teaching of the Word of God, as they listen to the answer for the ache of their soul, the gnawing frustration and emptiness within. And it doesn't move them and it doesn't matter which angle. Those are the most tragic individuals of all. If you're one of them, if you just live in a numb, empty existence, you should call out to God and ask Him to touch you and quicken you and awaken you to your condition so that you can find life as God intended it. That's the most tragic condition of all. At least if you know you're really thirsty, then you know you can come to Christ and give your life to Him to see what he'll do with it and watch him work and watch him bring that satisfaction. And so he invites the thirsting heart. Let me go to another thought here. Not only does he invite the thirsting heart, but then he instructs the willing heart. You see, in the crowd there are those that are really thirsty, but they're not all willing. Some of you are really thirsty, but you're not willing. You know, you've been tracking all the way along. You have money can't buy you happiness. Right. 
second marriage, going into the third and maybe going out sooner than I think, and uh, got something going on the side already. Right, right, right. I'm thirsty, but you're not willing. You see, you have to be willing. Jesus instructs the willing heart. He says in verse 38, He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He who believes in me. And before that, he says in verse 37, on the last day, on the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and he cried out saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You see, the instruction he gives is a call to commitment. It is a call to commitment. It's a call to action. It's to say, look, if you know you're thirsty, I'm thirsty enough that you're now willing to come. Are you willing to come? You know, I think it, as you go along in the Christian life and you're really born again and you really care about people and you really pray for them and you watch some of your loved ones sort of come to Christ and they sort of go back and don't walk with them and you see how miserable they become. Well, you develop a, a saying along the way that maybe they're not miserable enough yet and you reach back to your own life and you look back at how miserable you were when the Lord touched you and then you begin to pray God make them so miserable that they cannot go any farther down and the only way left is to look up and then Lord as they're looking up reach down and grab them you see that's the idea you become so thirsty so frustrated that you become willing are you in that place today if you are Jesus is ready and he wants to give you instruction and his instruction is so simple it's this come unto me just come unto me he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You come and you trust him. It isn't the kind of a commitment where you know everything about the Christian life. You know, there's, there's been in past years such great debate on the lordship issue of Jesus Christ. It's not waging so hot and heavy now. You know how things come and go and they have a, a shelf life. Even doctrinal battles among right-on Christians have shelf lives in the body of Christ. But the whole idea of you've got to take him as Lord. You know, some people have come to Christ and all they did was say, I am so thirsty and so empty and I hear your invitation and Lord, I come even now. And if you would have stopped them before they prayed the prayer, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Come and live in my life. Fill me up. Bring me that heavenly satisfaction. If you would have stopped them and said, hold on now. Who are you coming to? And you gave them a 24-page questionnaire. You know, of all these doctrines, they probably couldn't answer hardly any of those questions, if any at all. And yet, what they know is the Spirit of God is drawing them and they know that it's time to come. And then as they connect with God, then as they walk with God, you learn the details of the Christian life. I'll tell you how much I knew. I knew that... I had come to the Lord and prayed these prayers a couple times before and nothing had connected. I knew that. I knew that I was very empty. I knew that. I knew that the aching void and frustration was worse than it had ever been to the point of true suicidal tendencies, but too much of a coward to do it. I knew that too. I knew that I needed help and I knew that I believed in my heart that what was being told me was true. That he died for my sins and he rose again and he wanted to save me and forgive me of my sins and grant me heaven. That's all I knew. And on that I came to him and said, Lord, if you'll take my life, it's yours. I can't imagine why you'd want it. 
but I know that I want what you have, and I can't imagine why anybody wouldn't want it. So, Lord, please forgive me, and please give me your life. Live within me. And that was it. That's where the connection came. That's the commitment I'm talking about. It isn't a detailed thing necessarily. Now, on the other hand, it can be. On the other hand, you can have lived, grown up in church, and know every detail. Like one of the, the ladies in our church recently shared. She grew up in one of the greatest churches in the world. Grew all the way up from a little kid, all the way up, and knew all the doctrines, and did not know the Lord personally. What did it take? Hitting bottom. Becoming so thirsty, becoming so miserable, that she knew that knowing it wasn't enough. She had to know Him. You come and you trust Him. That's it. You just come to Him. You come as you are. And He fills in the details along the way. That doesn't mean, on the other hand, that those of us that know the Lord and preach the truth shouldn't preach a good, full, sound, rightly divided gospel. We should pack in it as much as we can, you know, without giving them a gospel overload where we're just data for the sake of data. But we should give a, a wonderful, rich, intelligent presentation of our faith so that we can enable them to come in a wonderful way to the Lord. So it's a call to commitment. Secondly here, as he instructs the willing heart, it's a call away from ceremony to Christ. Let me tell you what I mean by this. Look at verse 37. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. I remember a few minutes back in the message when I said that Jesus was the master of taking the circumstances happening and getting in that flow. And I also said that he was using everything that was going on outwardly, being taught, and the, these shallow men around him, to, and the entire feast itself, to pull people in to a heartfelt relationship with God. Well, this is the ultimate climax of all of that. It's the eighth day of the feast. If you go to Jerusalem in these days... In, in just recent years, last few years, they have, as you come up to Jerusalem and you look at the uh, western wall, the foundation stones that are there where they put the prayers in and they, they go back and forth and they pray and all of that. Well, just around the corner, they have uncovered the actual steps that led up into the temple area where all the common people would enter the temple area. So there's these huge steps and then there were these great huge doors they would go through. Below those steps, down the hill, which would have been over the wall and outside the city, is the Pool of Siloam. And that was one of the main water sources for the city, always. What they would do is, is throughout the feast, they would go down there and they'd get water, the priests. On the eighth day of the feast, the, the priest, followed by worshipers that would want to come and watch, They'd come out those doors and down those steps. We actually sat on those steps. And uh, Pastor Chuck Smith sat wearing a big leather hat from Australia. He sat and taught this whole thing right there where they would have walked back and forth. So the priest would have come out with the worshippers gone down to the Pool of Siloam carrying these, these golden pitchers. And then they would have filled them up with water very ceremoniously. And this is the big final event of the eighth day of the feast, and they would have then come back up the steps, 
back into the temple area, on up into the court of the priests, and come to the altar and pour it, gone around seven times, and then poured out the water. It was a great ceremony with this water to culminate the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was to celebrate and thank God and worship God for His faithfulness to them through the wilderness. So the idea of the water is that he was faithful to give them the water in the wilderness. So here they are. This is a ceremony that they do in honoring God. It is a great ceremony. But though the ceremony spoke of the water and all of that, even more it spoke of their coming Messiah who would take care of them and be their provision and the answer to their thirst in life and so on. So here they come. This is the greatest ceremony and the greatest feast of the year in terms of feasts. And as they're doing this, no doubt as the priests were actually walking up the steps with the pitchers, the golden pitchers, the people worshiping and praising God, Jesus stood up. He who came in secretly and then slowly began to teach, he stood up and he shouted in front of everybody, if anybody in this crowd is really thirsty, you know, they're watching this water splash. They see the priests. It's hot. They live in a world where they're always thirsty, basically, in a sense. If anyone in this crowd is really thirsty, let him come unto me. He seizes the moment and he seizes years of this great ceremony and he pulls it around and he says, it's all about me. That ceremony is about me. I'm the one. I'm your Messiah. I'm the answer. It's me. If you're really thirsty, start looking away from that ceremony to me. So it's a call to commitment, but it's a call away from ceremony to Christ. And the message here is so powerful because... When he says in his simplicity, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink, it's so simple on the one hand. But it's in the setting where they must leave their ceremony to have Christ replace the ceremony, understand? So that he is the answer to it. So your journey need not be a long one. It's a matter of understanding who he is, what he's done for you, what he wants to do for you. So that those that were on the steps and those that saw the pictures and heard him crying, their journey, maybe they just came in from, from somewhere way outside of Jerusalem. Their journey to salvation and fulfillment and quenching of their thirst of their souls, it didn't have to be a long one, it could be quick. Just get in the flow of the people that were responding to him. That's all. Follow him, get to know him and, and take what he offered. Because he had already taken the longest journey to get to them. And so it is in your life. Your journey doesn't have to be a long one to the Lord. It's just the idea that once you understand that you come, that when you know you're thirsty and you hate it and you can't take it anymore and you know He's offering the answer and He is the answer, that you become willing and you follow His instruction and you come to Him. That's the idea. And you know something? For some of you, it takes turning away from a lifetime of ceremony. A lifetime. And that isn't so easy. You grow up in a religious atmosphere that's all ceremony. And, and it's all designed for an outward thing. So much of it that it fills your life to the point that surely there could be nothing more in Christianity than all of these ceremonies I've been taught. They're holy, they're sanctified, they're godly. This is what God likes. And to be told, come away from those ceremonies at best, 
Even if the traditions are based in the Bible, at best they were to point to Christ anyway. To come away from those ceremonies and to embrace Him is what you must do because the ceremonies are not the end. In fact, they can be the biggest roadblock of all. And that's what they were in the lives of those people. Are you from that kind of a background? You come in a place like this, you look around, oh my goodness, a few silk plants, you know, a screen, some lights, chairs of all things. What about hundred-year-old pews, wooden and things? You know, you look around, you're nervous. I don't think God could be in a place like this. I don't think He'd show up here, you know? He needs so much incense you can't see, and He needs gold everywhere, and all the other stained glass windows, at least a few, you know? And it's hard if you've grown up with all that. Candles everywhere. Religious outfits, you know. But listen, if you've grown up with that, it can be the biggest roadblock in your life to your personal relationship with Christ. And let me just ask you a question. Let's be real honest, shall we? How many people do you know that have lived like that that could turn around and tell you, Oh, I love it. It's the greatest thing. It's my life. I love the ceremonies. I love it. You know, aside, think of the design of it all. It's one distraction after the next. And then to supplement the mechanical ceremony so often as some great superstitious experience. So that here you are, your life is filled with ritual and ceremony, enough to make anybody think they're godly. And then occasionally it's supplemented with some weird thing that happens. You know, that somebody says, and this is from God, you know. Uh, a, a weeping picture, you know, of one of the disciples. And you run, you see the tears flow on the painting, and you touch it, and, oh my goodness, Martha is really wet. Oh, oh. You know? Man, between this and all these ceremonies we've got in life, who could ask for more, you know? Like the woman who burnt a tortilla in her frying pan. <laughs> and... She pulled it out, was going to throw it out, you know, probably cranky because she burned it and hurry making dinner. And, but just before she was going to throw it out, she saw, she saw a face in the burn marks on the tortilla. She was suddenly greatly inspired and moved and she stopped and she coddled that holy thing in her hands. And she looked and there among the burn marks unmistakably was the face of Jesus. And so she built a shrine, put the tortilla in glass some doilies <laughs> and it became the shrine of the tortilla <laughs> you know these things go on and on and on Jesus said if you're thirsty he doesn't say get involved in a lot of ceremonies he says come to who? me come to me It's a call away from ceremony to Christ. And then it's a call to communion with Christ. He says, come to me and drink and drink. You know, um, occasionally I drink this stuff that uh, we have some in our refrigerator right now. It's the latest thing. You know, it's these um, minerals that are liquid and they come from, I don't know, journey to the center of the earth or something. You know, it's that liquid stuff you drink and you're supposed to go right into your body. And... uh, People give it to us, so occasionally we drink it and people give us all kinds of things. You wouldn't believe it. But, um, you know, the idea, the whole... I always marvel that they never really tell you what it'll do for you. All health food stuff on this side. Every time I look, what's it going to do for me? No promise whatsoever. 
This is taken from licorice root and slippery elm and, you know, something else found deep in the forest under some dirt. You know, and it never tells you this will change your life. It'll, you know, you'll look in the mirror and you'll have rosy cheeks and you'll have thick hair and, you know, guaranteed to give you better posture and a slim waist and, you know, give you a better arch on your flat feet. It, it never makes any promises like that. Anyhow, we have this stuff. And that's, thank you, whoever you were that gave it to us. I, I didn't see the note with it, but the idea is you drink it and assimilate it becomes part of your body immediately, part of you. Jesus said, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. It's a, it's a call to communion with him to where he becomes a part of you. That's the best thing of all, I think, you know, the best thing of all. Before I became a Christian, as I was coming to this place of thirst and frustration and emptiness, my biggest question mark in my mind was, is God really out there? Are you out there, God? And if you're out there, will you talk to me? You know, you hear all the theories, you read the religions, you explore them all. But in the end, I just wanted to know, if you're out there, will you talk to me? Can you be part of my life? Would you be my God? You see, that's it. Come and drink. He becomes a part of your life as you commune with Him. If you're thirsty and you're willing and you will come and commune with Him, that's it. Your whole life will change. So He invites the thirsting, He instructs the willing heart, and finally He infuses the open heart. I love this. just want to wrap it up with this. In verse 38 He says, He who believes in Me... As the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now think about this for a minute. Here's John writing. This is years later. You know, the other gospels have been written. This is way later. You would think that John would look back on that day and he'd remember Jesus' booming voice and he'd write down something like, He who believes in me, as the scripture says, your thirst will be quenched and you'll be happy. You'd think, humanly speaking, that's probably what you would have written down. Something like that, you'd expect John to. But he doesn't because it isn't what Jesus said. What he says is, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart, out, will flow rivers, not trickles, rivers, torrents, is the Greek, torrents of living water. Living water. They were big on living water in those days because stagnant water pretty much meant death. So the water, if it was moving, you know, like a brook or a stream, and it was moving and it was clear, then it was living. Stagnant water, mosquitoes, you know, slime, green stuff, not living, kind of dead and death-like, and it would poison you. So they were very big on living water. So when he says living water, to them it means flowing, rushing water. So he says out of, your, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. So the idea is this. He says that this, John adds, was concerning the Spirit whom those believing in Him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Just a tremendous statement sweeping in all the work of the cross and the resurrection. But the idea here is this. Jesus doesn't just say, come and I'll satisfy you. What he actually says is, you come to me 
and I'll make you like me. That's what he's saying. You see, as they sat in that crowd and listened to him, they were astonished. They marveled. The Spirit of God was moving deep within their souls, doing something they'd never experienced, many of them before. Jesus was there as a channel for the life of God to them, coming out of him to them. So that he is saying, yes, God will fill you. God will quench your thirst. I will satisfy you, but I have absolutely no intention of stopping there. What I really want to do is I want to fill you up and then I want to flow out from you so that he who believes in me out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So that the idea is that Jesus said in another place, I will send the comforter, another, the comforter, another, and the word he used was another of exactly the same kind, exactly like me, he's going to do with you what I have done with you. And the idea is that he will then make you like me. So to come to Christ, to get your thirst quenched, is to come and to be so filled that you will eventually begin to overflow. And then the overflow is designed to equate to a Christ-like life of giving and flowing in the spirit and power of God so that you then go and touch others the way He has come and touched you. And you become Christ in that sense in the world. You become the light of the world. You become the salt of the earth. You become like Him. So to believe on Him and have rivers of living water flowing out of your life is to become so satisfied and to know true satisfaction and the source of it that you can give that satisfaction away. And you can say to someone, Are you thirsty? Are you really thirsty? Are you so thirsty you never want to be this thirsty again? Well, then I have the answer. Jesus said, If you will come unto me, rivers of living water, and you just lead them right to him. And it flows out to others. I think a great example, I want to leave you with this, that I came across was Dr. Howard Kelly, he had a very unique way of witnessing, very effective. He was never seen in public without a beautiful pink rose on his lapel. Anytime you saw him, there was a rose. And this practice gave him a lot of opportunities to witness about his relationship with the Lord. Someone meeting him on the street might stop him and remark and say, Oh, that's a lovely rose you're wearing there, Dr. Kelly. And he would say something like this, Yes, it is. In fact, it's a Christian rose. And I would always catch people off guard. A Christian rose? How can you have a Christian rose? It's a Christian rose. And they would say inevitably, well, why do you call it that? And he would then turn back his lapel and show them on the other side this little tiny water bottle that the stem was tucked into that kept the rose fresh and smelling nice. And he would say to the person, as they smelled the nice, fresh, sweet rose, he would say, you see, it's a Christian rose because it has a hidden source of life and beauty. When our Savior pardons sins, he also unites us with himself and thereby nourishes and strengthens us. And he becomes the secret reservoir of our joy 
And any fragrance of testimony we exhibit then to the world comes from Him, that secret source of life. That's it. You get to the place where your life is a source of the fragrance of Christ's love. That's to have the life where the rivers of living water flow out from you because they have flown so deeply into you and filled you to overflowing. So now they flow out as well. It's living, you see. It never comes in to stop. It comes His power and life to pass through, to pass through. And that's the idea. I love what Paul said in Corinthians. He said, 2 Corinthians 2.14, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. See, there's always those around us that are thirsty and willing and they want to come. Then there's always those around us who are thirsty and are not willing, and tragically, even those who simply don't care either way. But the ones we're after are the ones that want to come. And if you're one of those, Jesus will take you today if you will come to Him. Open your heart and come to Him. Right where you sit, it's your life and His. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you so much for salvation in Christ. Thank you for the blessed, blessed flow of your life into us. Thank you, Lord, that truly the fragrance of heaven comes with the Spirit-filled life. Help us each one, Lord, to find that true fulfillment and quenching of the thirst in our relationship with you and draw all those, Lord, that you would have to come this day to you, and may they find their life in you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.